acute approach patient positioning in RSI. You can never be harmed by having a backup plan. This statement makes me crazy, I will tell you that. We know that there's risks associated with it. This is all about knowing your drugs. It is cruel to give just a paralytic agent. Man, I wish I would have done this five minutes ago. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We're excited, as always, here on CCPEM to bring you the latest literature updates, and we are going to touch on some recent clinical practice guidelines for intubating the critically ill adult patient that were recently published in Critical Care Medicine by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. But as we get into this discussion, let me bring in stellar co-hosts that you've listened to. You know them all too well. Dr. John Greenwood and Dr. Peter W. here for this podcast. John, it's been a little while since we've recorded. Many of us have had a little bit of travel, some conferences. We're just coming out of ASEP. You got to be feeling good at this point in the Philadelphia region. How are things going? Yeah, lots of things going on. So yes, the Philadelphia Phillies last night, they took the division series from the Atlanta Braves and uh, Spencer Strider. So that was exciting. Now, I unfortunately couldn't attend. I was working overnight in the ICU last night. We had a really busy shift. We had like eight admissions. It was quite busy, but I got to keep up a little bit on the side. And this morning, this is sort of a plug of public service announcement. I was able to get both my COVID shot and my flu shot. So I have probably about 45 minutes until I'm out for the count for the next 16 hours, and then I'll be ready to go tomorrow. (laughs) Well, we will certainly be sure to complete the recording in that time period. And as we've all experienced, a little bit of acetaminophen, a little bit of ibuprofen hopefully gets you through the rest of the day. Dr. W, how are things south of here? Things south of here in New Orleans are quite nice. The weather is taking a great turn for it to be more temperate and cooler. So it's nice to be out and about and enjoying life in New Orleans. Outstanding. It was so great to see you at ASEP in Philadelphia. Now, you will not hear Dr. Rodriguez, who is one of our co-hosts here on CCPEM. Rob is actually in transit. He's traveling today, much like many of you in the fall season for conferences. Many of you have the fall running festivals that are coming up. Our best wishes for those of you running in races this fall. And really, we're entering into, quite honestly, my favorite time of the year, that fall period, October, November, December, as we round out 2023. And to get to our education, we got an important document to cover during this podcast. And as I mentioned, leading off, we're going to just hit the highlights on the recently published SCCM, Clinical Practice Guidelines for Rapid Sequence Intubation in the Critically Ill Adult. And gentlemen, to really just set the stage, we know this all too well. We perform RSI in critically ill patients for a number of reasons. For emergency airway management, we do it in the ED, we do it in the ICU, and well, we know that there's risks associated with it. We know that there is peri-intubation hypoxemia, peri-intubation hypotension, or post-intubation hypotension, as some refer to. There's that peri-intubation cardiac arrest, lots of complications. And so SCCM wanted to put out multidisciplinary guidelines. So they put together a panel that 
was representative of emergency medicine, intensivist critical care physicians, and also APPs, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, anesthesiologists, along with clinicians in the pre-hospital setting to put together this guideline and really provide us with evidence-based recommendations on not only pharmacologic, but also non-pharmacologic topics related to rapid sequence intubation. So we're going to go through a few of those recommendations. They do have a number listed in the document, and we will put a link not only to the document, but we will have our usual summary handout attached for your ability to download for this audio recording. So we're going to hit question number one. John, I'm going to turn to you first because I'm going to go through the recommendation. Then I'd like to see how you and then Peter interpret this recommendation and how you really do it in clinical practice. And guideline number one really deals with patient positioning. Their question in terms of researching this question is, is there a difference between the semi-fowler position, so essentially head and chest incline versus the supine position on first pass success? on desaturation during RSI, or on the incidence of pulmonary aspiration. And at the end of the day, they identified 17 studies in their review, stated that there was essentially mixed results on first pass success between head elevated or the supine position. Didn't appear to be any difference in hypoxemia or desaturation or increased risk of aspiration. So based on low quality evidence, they provide us with a conditional recommendation for the semi-fowler position. In other words, head and torso inclined during RSI. So thoughts on this recommendation, this guidance, and how do you do that? Or how do you approach patient positioning in RSI? Yeah, this is a great one. This is definitely something I've incorporated in my practice over the past five years, this head up intubation practice where what I do is I'll generally have the patient's head of bed at 20 to 30 degrees in elevation. And practically speaking in the ER, our patients are not NPO. They often have full stomachs. This is a critical time where we need to perform RSI. And oftentimes I've found lying patients flat, I'll get de-recruitment, I'll get early desaturation. And it really makes the visual axis of seeing the vocal cords a lot easier when they're head of bed up. And so I'm glad to see they've looked at the evidence and it does appear that they are also aligned with including this in practice. Certainly the level of evidence may not just be there yet, but certainly something I do on a daily basis. Great initial portion of this discussion, John. I agree with you in terms of patient positioning. Peter, I'm interested in your thoughts on this initial recommendation to start this document and discussion off and how you play things out. Right. And I think that this is critically important, particularly with our patient populations with elevated BMI, because to place that patient in a supine position physiologically makes things more difficult. And then anatomically for visualization makes things more difficult. So in the semi-fowler position, we had a case yesterday that had we not done it, during this intubation for a very difficult patient who was 5'7 and came in at 280, who had sudden onset change in mental status, had we not had him in that position to intubate him, it would not have happened. It was a very difficult intubation as it was. Had he not been in that position, I think it would have been 
almost tragic. We would have had to use either an extraglottic device or go to surgical pretty quickly. Outstanding. So really, I think all three of us favor that patient positioning, and it's really critical when performing RSI in the critically ill patient. Well, let's move on to the second topic they cover, and that is pre-oxygenation. Really interested in your thoughts. Peter, I'm going to go to you first after providing the background. So in essence, the question they sought to answer with their review of the literature pertains to pre-oxygenation in the critically ill adult. Is there a difference between high-flow nasal cannula, face mask, bag valve mask ventilation, or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation when pre-oxygenating the critically ill adult patient, looking at the incidence of desaturation, gastric insufflation, or once again, the incidence of pulmonary aspiration. Quickly, overall, they found 13 studies that evaluated this particular question and overall found that high-flow nasal cannula actually reduced rates of oxygen desaturation, increased that safe apnea time that we're looking to perform or looking to do with pre-oxygenation when compared to face mask. Now, overall, it didn't seem to have any effect on aspiration risk. And really, they didn't find any significant evidence around the incidence of cardiovascular collapse using these very methods of pre-oxygenation. So based on low-quality evidence, they provide a conditional recommendation and actually suggest we think about pre-oxygenation using high-flow nasal cannula during laryngoscopy and consider using non-invasive ventilation when we have patients that have severe hypoxemia defined in this document by a P to F ratio less than 150. So Peter, let me turn to you. Are you using high-flow nasal cannula frequently for pre-oxygenation and during laryngoscopy in critically ill patients? So I think first and foremost, this is an enormous game changer with the high-flow nasal cannula. I think it should be a standard for all intubations. We can't predict who's going to get into trouble in a small percentage of those patients but this is not a harmful intervention that can actually buy you time. And so it's a standard regardless of the patient that I interact with, right? Whether it's a pediatric patient who has presumably robust cardiopulmonary reserve, I will use it. I will use it in healthy adults and I will use it in sick adults. There is the indication to use non-invasive positive pressure ventilation for those patients who, with the other interventions we use, whether it be high-flow nasal cannula in addition to high-flow mask, that we're not reaching our goals, then try and attempt those goals with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. But those are the more rare cases, not the routine. But the routine for me now is having high-flow nasal cannula. I'd be interested to know what you guys do. Yeah, John, let me turn to you. So, yeah. Peter, those are all really good points. I don't routinely use high-flow nasal cannula for pre-oxygenation. Part of that is sometimes it's not readily available, and this is institutional. And I do think that while high-flow has been widely adopted at larger centers, I don't know if it's yet permeated all the individual community centers, for example. So what I do, though, is I still use non-rebreather mask, and I'll use flush rate flow. So I'll turn that oxygen up to 15, 20, 25 liters of flow and allow that to be used as my pre-oxygenation. I also have incorporated routine one to two bag valve mask attempts to kind of 
pre-oxygenate uh, right before doing intubation. There was that study in New England Journal, I think it was about two, three years ago, saying that that reduced incidences of hypoxia. I think the level of evidence is starting to grow for using high-flow nasal cannula. The Flo Raleigh study is the one that stuck out in my brain as I think that was not a positive trial, but there've been a couple ones after that that have suggested that high flow can prevent badness during these RSI attempts. So bottom line for me is that I haven't, as a standard part of my practice, adopted high flow as pre-oxygenation, but I do use it if it's available, certainly. But I will, at a minimum, do high flow through a non-rebreather mask of at least 20 liters a minute to pre-oxygenate my patients. Great points, gentlemen. I think with respect to the non-invasive ventilation, I'm using that more routinely for the intubating the obese patient. So having higher levels of non-invasive. I'm starting to use a little bit more high flow nasal cannula. I still think probably the majority of intubations, I'm using the non-rebreather with the nasal cannula at flush rate for apneic oxygenation, but I've been utilizing more and more high flow nasal cannula. And the perspective that they provide in these guidelines make me think I probably should start to use it a little bit more, but definitely non-invasive for the pre-oxygenation of the obese patient. Well, let's stick on the topic of pre-oxygenation because the next research question that they looked at in these guidelines pertains to medication-assisted pre-oxygenation. And while they don't necessarily come out and call it this, I think many of us know it as delayed sequence intubation. So the utilization of some medication to enhance our efforts at pre-oxygenation. And in essence, there wasn't a tremendous amount of literature when they looked into and researched this question. So based on a very low quality of evidence as it exists now, they give a conditional recommendation for medication-assisted pre-oxygenation for folks who are agitated, delirious, or combative, and you need some time to adequately pre-oxygenate them to lengthen the safe apnea time. Let's see, John, turning now back to you for your thoughts. Is this something that you align with, you use in clinical practice? Very rarely. If I do have a severely oxygenated hypoxic patient who's agitated, I often can put a non-rebreather on them. Sometimes it can take a little while to get those medications together in order to do this. You know, this is a very complex procedure. Some people might disagree, but I think this is a very complex procedure to do procedural sedation for pre-oxygenation. So it's not something that I do routinely. In my emergency department, we don't have readily available dexmedetomidine, which is a great drug for this, but we do have it available in the ICU. And so we use it much more in the ICU than we do in the ED. And if you're not comfortable with that tool, it makes it really hard to use it in a circumstance like this. So I think I agree with the recommendation of a very conditional recommendation to consider it at best. Peter, your thoughts? Yeah, I got to jump on John's bandwagon and give him props for all of those points because I agree with that. I think this is a rare utilization, but an important one in particular cases. But in the cases when it's utilized, the team communication so that everybody's has a coordinated effort in doing this as a team is critically important. A lot of moving parts to this and everybody in the space and in that room is going to be anxious. You know, when the patient's anxious and combative, that kicks it up a substantial level of anxiety towards a high-risk procedure. 
And so if your medication can de-escalate that, that's the goal, right? And then everybody can be calm and can do their jobs. However, if you have a combative patient and you give a drug that removes airway reflexes and depresses respirations, then you're in trouble, right? And everybody's more anxious, not less anxious. And it could be a cluster. So you have to be very careful with the medications that you're using, something along the lines with Presidex, but even utilizing ketamine in these cases can be fraught with challenges. So just be cautious. So those of us, you're all listening to the podcast, you're not able to see John, I might be jumping at the bit to respond to that. He was raising his hand on Zoom here. John, are you good? No, Peter covered it perfectly. That ending, what he talked about is so true. Like how many times during these complex situations do you try to do something and put yourself in a worse position? And then you're just looking around the room like, man, I wish I would have done this five minutes ago and it would have been done and it would have been a much better place. So Peter is 100% right. As we often say that he is. Great wisdom there. So well said, gentlemen. Peter, I'm going to start with you on this one. And this actually is a little bit surprising to me in this document. So the next area that they looked at is placement of an NG tube to decompress the stomach prior to intubation. And really what they were looking at is, does an NG tube placement prior to intubation decrease the incidence of vomiting and aspiration? And quite honestly, of these handful of things that we're reviewing here on the podcast, I think it's the only one that they have as a best practice statement to place an NG tube for decompressing patients prior to RSI. So I don't feel that this is something we're commonly doing in the ED. What are your thoughts on this particular statement? This statement makes me crazy. I will tell you that. And the reason it makes me crazy, and it's understandable when you think of the group that put together the recommendations. So if we're in the OR, right, controlled environment, and most of those people were NPO, after a certain period of time. If you're in the ICU and you're being fed, chances are if you're really sick and being intubated, we just extubated you and we're gonna intubate you again. And if anything, you had tube feedings and we can suck out your stomach because the tube is already there. So it's perspective, right? In the ED, we don't have the luxury of having somebody come in who already has an NG tube or a feeding tube in place. We don't have the luxury of canceling a case or delaying that case, we're intubating because there is an emergent need. I've never had my day improved by emesis. Not once. Not once has that happened. And it really hasn't happened when my patient is vomiting and I'm trying to control an airway. I find that acute placement of an NG tube in patients evokes that response. Does it make it less likely? It evokes that response. So why oh, why would I try and stimulate that response when I'm trying to control an airway? Now, I would say if someone's vomiting buckets of blood, I'm going to place an NG tube and try and clear that. And if then I have to intubate them, I've got that in place. If someone's excessively vomiting as it is, I'm not sure that placing an NG tube is going to effectively evacuate that stomach. I just don't. In the case where an emergent urgent airway is indicated. I'd be interested pearls. in what you guys think. Yeah, tons of great pearls in all of what you just said, Peter. John, following up on that. I have nothing to add. He's right. He's right. He's right. <laughs> Once again. We're back to 100% right for Dr. W. 
Oh, Peter, really, you said it outstandingly well there with respect to NG tube decompression. So a little bit of disagreement here with the guideline statement. Now, moving on, we've got just a few more to cover. And we've covered this before in prior CCPEM podcasts. And it's really, they look at the utilization of peri-intubation vasopressors. And the question they posed is, in hypotensive patients that we need to do RSI in, is there a difference when we utilize pressors versus IV fluid alone with respect to the incidence of post-intubation hypotension and peri-intubation cardiac arrest. We've done some of these studies and covered them in prior podcasts that they were able to find with respect to looking at this question. And overall, their analysis, so the panel analysis, didn't really feel that there was sufficient evidence to state one way or the other or provide even a conditional recommendation on whether to use pressors or not, or whether it improves outcomes in critically ill hypotensive patients undergoing RSI. So John, back to you for your initial comments with respect to this. Even though they make no recommendation, I think we've had thoughts on this before. Yeah, you know, I think this is really interesting. And I think part of the literature that we've seen over the years that has changed is this concept of resuscitation before intubation. And that has come about partly because of some of the previous literature that's not cited in this recommendation. And we kind of see this in other areas, like standard of care of sepsis changes, and all of a sudden there's no difference between early goal-directed therapy and standard of care. Some of these trials that look at a fluid bolus before intubation, if that prevents hemodynamic collapse, or vasopressor bolus if it's needed versus fluid bolus. Well, patients are much better resuscitated before we do RSI now. So it's not surprising that these papers are not finding a significant difference. What I would recommend is ristratifying your patient though, when you're about to perform RSI. And you can use whatever criteria you want, whether it's shock index, looking at by echo, looking at the heart rate or the systolic blood pressure or the mean arterial pressure if you're close to a map of 60, that patient may likely get into trouble when you put them on positive pressure ventilation and give them RSI drugs. So we need to be readily prepared for that. And usually that may be by having a norepinephrine drip running already to give ourselves some room in blood pressure before we perform RSI or be ready and prepared with some sort of vasopressor, whether it's phenylephrine or some other push dose medication, just in case. You can never be harmed by having a backup plan. And that's what we do best in the emergency department is to have a plan A, B, C, and D. And again, this is gonna be a team-based approach. If you're at the head of the bed doing the procedure, you have someone at the foot of the bed watching the monitor and talking to their nurse so that you can kind of have that communication while you're focused on the task at hand. So while the evidence may not be robust in this area, this is something I routinely incorporate in my practice and I have routinely used, even though I thought I was gonna be safe in performing this procedure. So certainly for me, I recommend its use. And while the evidence isn't 100% there, it's worth reading. Yep. Completely agree. Peter, your thoughts? You know, I have very little to add to John's comments because I agree 100% with that, that preparation and anticipation is a large part of this game. And if you mixed a norepi bag and you never used it, that's not expensive care medicine. That's 10 bucks, right? Much prefer that as opposed to allowing someone to be hypotensive. We know the data, whether it's pre-hospital, in-hospital, in-OR, or in the ICU, that hypotension 
is a really bad thing and we should be avoiding it and treating it aggressively. All right. Outstanding pearls. This is such an awesome podcast. Well, Peter, I'm going to turn to you, but let's tackle the next two questions at the same time. They deal with the induction agent. The first of those next questions is they simply wanted to know, well, in critically ill adults who are hemodynamically labile, so perhaps unstable, and you go to intubate them, should you use a sedative hypnotic agent with your neuromuscular blocking agent or just the neuromuscular blocking agent alone? And then as a follow-up, they asked, is there any difference between induction agents? Specifically, is there any difference between atomidate compared to ketamine, compared to midazolam, or compared to propofol in terms of patient mortality? post-intubation hypotension use, or the need for vasopressors. And so in terms of that first one, the evidence that they looked at was very scant, but they do recommend administering a sedative hypnotic agent with your paralytic. And in regards to the second, also based on moderate quality evidence, they state there's really no difference between Tomidate and the other induction agents. So let me get your thoughts on one, whether to use a sedative with the NMBA, and then two, do you have a preferred induction agent? So great, great questions. The first one is, should we be giving an induction agent with the paralytic, even in sick patients, even when it's time compressed? These are bang, bang administration medicines. So it's not, I'm pushing the induction agent, then I'm going to wait to see if there's an effect, then I'm pushing the paralytic. They should be given immediately after each other, right? One, two. It is cruel to give just a paralytic agent. And we know the awake trials and things like that, that people are aware of their surroundings and as high as approaching 5% of those people can recount what happened to them in the resuscitation area, peri-RSI, and even after the push of a paralytic. So they should be receiving a sedative. Other than that, that that's just, for me, it's cruelty. The second piece is which agent to use. I am less caught up in which agents to use as opposed to which agents probably not to use. And probably not using a propofol and probably not using a Versed for fear of lowering blood pressure needlessly. And I would steer away from those more along the lines of an atomidate or a ketamine, and I'm fine with that. And I like ketamine in the setting, frank hypotension, even though the data is not pressing towards that. From a physiologic standpoint, it makes sense to me. Sounds great. John, additions to what Peter just said. I agree with all Peter's points here too. As far as induction agent use, absolutely. This is all about knowing your drugs, right? Knowing the side effects, the duration of action, the timing of effect, all that stuff's really important. And we own this in the emergency department for RSI drugs. We know this stuff like the back of our hand because we prepare right? So that might mean half-dose induction agent for a critically ill or hypotensive patient, right? But I'm giving them something because that awareness thing is real. That's a never event in anesthesia. It should be a never event in the emergency department as well. 
And as far as which drug, that kind of ties into what I was saying before, really just knowing your tools. And if you're unsure, ask your pharmacist. That's why we have them there. Bring them into the resuscitation room and come up with a plan of how you're going to use your RSI drugs. So I'm not going to try to start a major war with our friends overseas regarding whether or not Atomidate is a good drug or not. The evidence is still really mixed there. I might lose some listeners here, but I still use it all the time. I have yet to have any untoward effects. I'll probably have one next week. But no, it's a great drug for me. And, and even the long views, I haven't had any or noticed any anecdotal issues with adrenal suppression. That's not really prominent in the literature as well. Well, speaking of that, they do tackle that. And we're going to kind of just quickly address it simply to say that in terms of the evidence that the panel looked at with respect to the co-administration of steroids when using Atomidate to overcome the potential for adrenal suppression, they actually recommend against it. No need to give corticosteroids following RSI when using Atomidate as an induction agent. Well, John, now I'm going to turn to you. The final two areas, we're going to tackle these just the same as we did for the sedative. The final two areas they look at are neuromuscular blocking agents and very similar question, but flipping it. So in terms of intubating critically ill patients, the first of these last questions really pertains to should we actually be sedative only? And then when choosing a neuromuscular blocking agent, succinylcholine versus rocuronium. What they looked at with respect to essentially a sedative only intubation, well, they recommend against that. Really, they have a strong recommendation to provide a neuromuscular blocking agent when using a sedative for rapid sequence intubation in the critically ill adult. And to cut to the chase in terms of rocuronium versus succinylcholine, they took a look at over 30 studies that evaluated sux versus rock, really didn't find any significant evidence one way or the other on mortality. And they suggest really either rocuronium or succinylcholine and really base it upon the individual patient and ensuring no contraindications exist to sucks if you're going to use that medicine. So your thoughts on these final two questions before we wrap up this podcast? Yeah, these are two great points here. And I absolutely use neuromuscular blocking agents for my RSI. I want the best conditions. I don't want to stimulate the gag reflex. As Peter said, emesis has never improved my day. So I do not want to give myself a harder chance of getting that airway in that really sick patient. So I do use paralytics. Now, what paralytic is a very different question. And I agree it's patient specific. If I'm concerned about this patient with an airway mass or something that spontaneous breathing is super important, okay? If I'm not doing awake intubation, I'm going to attempt RSI. I may choose to use succinylcholine because it's a rapid on, rapid off, and they'll be breathing on their own very quickly. And I just have to bag them for a little while as opposed to rocuronium. We had this patient come in just the other night, a status epilepticus patient. And again, this was a great teaching moment at the bedside between our clinical pharmacist, myself, and our residents talking about which RSI drugs to use. The patient had been seizing for 15 minutes despite multiple rounds of benzodiazepines, Keppra, and we're preparing for RSI. We're about to hit that 20-minute mark as we'd made this decision 10 minutes in, but which drug to use? And a patient with a known kidney disease at risk for hyperkalemia, we don't have drugs back. That's where we're going to make some different decisions about what drugs to use, whether to use rocuronium or succinylcholine. So I agree it's patient specific, but I always use them. 
All right, outstanding, well said. Dr. W, final yeah, questions just, to address. Okay, just one point, and I agree wholeheartedly with what John had to say. I like the seizure patient, but along those lines, my brain-injured patients, whether it's stroke or whether it's TBI, following their neuro exam really drives what I do. They're going to go to the scanner, but immediately after that, I want to repeat my neuro exam. My neurosurgeon's going to want to repeat that neuro exam. The neurologist is going to want to repeat that neuro exam. So using sucks in those cases is critically important in my practice. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, this has been really, really a fun and outstanding podcast here, reviewing these latest SCCM guidelines. Now, for those of you that are able to look at critical care medicine, the latest issue, you'll notice that there is an overall executive summary that if you're pressed on time, just hits the highlights here. And then there's the larger document that we've gone through. And, and our thanks also to Dr. Alhadi. He works with us to prepare a lot of these agendas. You'll hear him hopefully in coming podcasts. You've heard him once before. We want to get him back on the podcast here for his thoughts and impressions. So thanks, Rashid, for preparing the document here, the summary document of these clinical guidelines addressing patient positioning, pre-oxygenation, medication-assisted pre-oxygenation, the controversies on NG2 placement prior to intubation, and then the utilization of either peri-intubation pressors along with the induction and paralytic utilization. So my thanks once again, gentlemen. This is super, super helpful. I hope all of you have found it a helpful discussion as well. We are going to wish you all well. We'll close out this podcast, and we will so look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.